You're listening to the Digital Void Podcast, a weekly exploration of digital culture, media, technology, and memes, featuring critical conversations with experts at the forefront of our digital moment. My name is Josh Chapdelaine, and my co-host is Dr. Jamie Cohen. Memes inspire action. Earlier this summer, Universal Studios released Minions, The Rise of Gru, and inspired the gentle Minions trend, where legions of people, mostly teenagers who grew up with the Despicable Me series, dressed up in suits to see the film. The viral trend earned millions of impressions on TikTok and helped the film earn hundreds of millions of dollars worldwide. Also in July, another tragic shooting occurred in the United States. On July 4th, seven people were killed and 48 people were wounded or injured in the Illinois suburb of Highland Park. It was, unfortunately, the latest in a horrifying number of shootings in which the shooter was radicalized, at least in part, by online communities, where memes are a shared language for communication. In this week's conversation, Jamie and I take a deep dive into meme culture. Specifically, we explore how memes promote action in physical space, from the fun and weird to the extreme and tragic. This is a deep dive of a conversation, where we explore how the aesthetics, looks, feels, and vibes of memes are encoded with information that inspire action. How can content moderators or people outside of in-group communities understand intent when nothing is explicitly being said? How do manifestos of killers become part of meme culture itself? And is the term meme culture in jeopardy of being entirely co-opted. Before we begin, make sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast provider and leave a five-star review if you enjoy the show. You can find show notes of today's episode, which include links and resources for your reference in the show summary or on digitalvoid.media. Here's this week's conversation. So Josh, you might know this. Um, I know my former students know this, but I used to use like really low-level philosophy fodder in my classes to kind of get our minds going, to kind of embrace what reality is versus aesthetic-based reality, or at least like pseudo-reality. And I always use this, uh, you know, I I use simulation theory. And simulation theory is like this very, very easy-to-use dumb trope that allows people to start thinking about, are we already digital? Are we already immersed inside of digital space. And the goal of the conversation isn't really to fuck with people and make them think they're in the matrix, but it's actually to give them a better grounding in what is real. I mean, that's the question we have to consistently be asking that we've been asking, well, pretty much forever, and especially since the Enlightenment and modernity. But when it comes to young people who increasingly spend more and more time online, it was a good exercise. You know, it was a good good play thing to kind of act along the lines of like, well, how do you know what's real? How do you know what it is? And so I taught it a lot in game studies for obvious reasons, because Nick Bostrom, the philosopher, talked about the idea of resolution and basically put it in terms of like, well, if Pong was 40 years ago and now we're at virtual reality that is like almost real life matched to our faces, then how do we know that we already aren't well past that? We've already been digitized and this is just a training module for that. You know, so it's a game. It's fun. However, what I think we're seeing is people in general not thinking about reality in those constructs anymore, or at least what's tangible, but reframing their their experience, especially post-COVID. I won't be doing this conversation again post-COVID, by the way. 
is, and, and we're not even in post COVID, but like, you know, in post pause, post, post time in the, uh, in the, in not going outside, people spent way too much time on the internet and we could see a clear and distinct break of what the perception of reality might be. And on the outside of the COVID experience, people feel in many ways the way they felt before, but even more so disenfranchised, lost, left out, uh, so to speak, um, the false thought of marginalization. None of these things are actually damaging to the subset of people we're going to speak about today, but it really is about how during the time of COVID and everything else, the idea of meme culture, when I'm, I'm going to put that in air quotes, we're in a podcast, it's hard to see it, but the idea of meme culture has become a prominent display of reality-based action, like as in physical space action. I'm talking violence, shooters, people trolling people in real space based on things that are solely internet-based. And it seems to me that the construct of reality to a lot of these young men are seemingly attaching themselves to a simulation of reality that is very much not in their favor, but they're using it to help guide others into these dangerous spaces. So today I want to talk about the quote-unquote meme culture that is being used a lot of terms in our news lately and explain that there's a responsibility for us to remind people how reality works. Yeah. And we're seeing this in ways that are manifesting via mass shootings, as well as in perhaps more lighthearted ways, such as the gentle minions trend. Yes, right. Yeah. Yeah. And this is like, I think we should discuss this in terms of like everything from anonymous to gentle minions, because I think they're they're of the same branch. But I think we're also looking at the, these quotes that we're seeing in the news that extremist researchers who are excellent, these extremist researchers are doing an amazing job at discussing this. But to, in terms of discussing what it means to be an extremely online creature or spend times in forums, then turn to violent extremism. So yeah, on one side, we have the gentle minions, which I would say is just games and uh, flash mob fun um, versus not fun at all, horrific, violent murder that is being used to help push other people into that meme space. Yeah. And so let's start with the fun and lighthearted. You yes. you made <laughs> you made the connection between anonymous and gentle minions. Can you take a little bit of a deep dive into the similarities between those two? Yeah. Chris Poole, who founded 4chan, uh, used to do this TED talk about what it means to have the internet in real space. And this this TED talk is, I think, from 2010. And one of the points he tried to make was that anonymous or the loose-knit group of people that refer to themselves as anons on their on anonymous boards can congregate in real space, in physical space, and create protests or action and direct action. Uh, one of the pictures that he uses in his talk, which I think I can't get out of my head, is this image of these people wearing Guy Fawkes masks standing outside of some place wearing black suits and black ties and holding a sign that says, don't worry, we're from the internet. And that that image, that sign holding, was kind of like an introduction for the public to seeing how the internet can uh, amass in physical space. Now you jump ahead and you get algorithmic social media like TikTok. And algorithmic social media basically helps us amplify small niche repeatable actions. So physical memes like dances and IRL memes not that are, are downstream from like planking or owling or T-bowing or whatever they were. And started making it into something a lot more anonymous-like, but now less anonymous. So <laughs> there's this blend of uh, faux nostalgia that's been persistent on the internet for, well, as long as the internet has existed, and this un misunderstanding of how flash mobs operate. And so recently, 
these young people, these Gen Zers, have taken the idea of irony posting, which is posting on the internet in a way that it seems like it, quote, it's just joking, so content moderators can't take it down, and turn that into a physical action. And the direct action is, to me, is funny. You know, it's they, they go, they, they congregate in black suits with black ties. They go to movie theaters and buy a fair amount of seats. <laughs> and they, and they go and watch uh, the newest Minions movie. And I've not seen any Minions movies, but I have actually written extensively about Minions. Um, specifically, Brian Feldman's article about from the all uh, about Minions, how they are genderless, uh, raceless, affect-based objects. So you could kind of, they're a meme. They're, they're a corporate meme that exists inside of me- videos, films, internet, and everything, and become shareable. Especially by Facebook moms. Oh, of course. Yes, <laughs> that's what I was going to say is, so Minion memes were like these palatable mimetic structures, right? So Facebook moms could put funny little quips and quotes on them and share them, and they become instantly shareable because everyone sees a Minion and they're like, hey, I don't mind having this on my Facebook wall. Of course, bad actors, internet trolls, so on and so forth, would change the captions of this to make them pretty not great. And it became irony posting in that way. So it was like, it was a picture of a minion smiling and next to it would say, your mom and I are getting a divorce. <laughs> and so it's it's kind of like these dark humors and it got much, much worse that we can't really express on here. Um, it became so dark, but the minions still became the vehicle for this. Because young people grew up with the minions and this corporate media and this corporate genderless, raceless, affect-based, pill-shaped things. As they've grown up, they want to recapture this idea of what youth means. So going to the movies to see these ridiculous movies, but now they're adults and they could wear suits. They could choose clothing options. They could make these congregations themselves. They can connect to one another. And this is where Gen Z has a very distinct, distinct, distinct difference between millennials and their generation, especially because of the COVID-19 pause, where they spent time taking school digitally and spending most of their time fully detached from a physical space. So there's a clear definite, uh, clear punctuation mark for Gen Z. This is agency for them. They are making their choices. They're making their ability to say, we're becoming a meme in real life. And it doesn't hurt somebody, somebody so to speak, but it does show people that the internet has that much of a aggregation or curation power that people motivate action. So there have been critics of this very thing you're speaking about, how the internet shapes reality. And I've seen a lot of criticism online from people who say that while the Gentle Minions meme is cute, the film has, or the film franchise has already grossed more than a billion dollars. And it's not actually contributing to the film's success. And people who study this and research this are overstating the importance of this trend. How would you respond? Yeah, I mean, this is something that like the Summer of Morbius um, or this Minions movie or even Thor Love and Thunder, you know, it's like the MCU's uh, nostalgia based structures. I think capitalism isn't or at least the people who sit at the top of executive desks at capitalist structures can't really grip what's going on. They still want to think that young people understand what celebrities are. They still want to think young people get the Hollywood structure and respect and, and how it works and, and movie stars or something. And, and it's a misunderstanding of a new culture that really didn't grow up with celebrities in the same way. And it's not only that, but influence itself is distinctly different today than it would have been a decade ago or 50 years ago. But the people who occupy the seats in these offices that are looking at numbers and being like, wow, 
look at this, look at the social mentions. The social mentions are at a million. There's a million mentions of minions. It's it must be us doing great. And it turns out it's not really them doing great at all. It's a meme. And the meme itself is pretty empty. You know, there's no real structure to them. There's just a matter of visibility. Yeah. So there's a big difference between the Summer of Morbius, which was a satirical, ironic campaign about uh, the film starring Jared Leto about Morbius. And that was a campaign fueled by irony that led to a failed re-release by Sony. And that earned millions and millions of impressions. But on the other hand, the gentle minions trend has earned more than 65 million impressions on TikTok as of this recording, but is actually connected to a real life commercial success. So what you're saying is that studio executives and those at the top of the capitalist structure have no idea how to actually interpret this information or plan for it. It honestly doesn't even matter how many millennials they hire as interns in their office or, or Gen Zers for that matter, because a lot of this is in reaction to a success. So Gen Z gets the opportunity to say, we're part of the success of this, but they really don't care because honestly, it's just giving money back to the studios. And it's the same way that Anonymous were Guy Fox masks. Warner Brothers profited from that style. You know, so the aesthetic itself was not in the benefit of the user, but rather in the benefit of the corporation. So, uh, yeah, I mean, this is it comes down to a misunderstanding of just culture. And it's actually what we're watching. We're watching something change in real time. We're actually watching something become a new structure of action, which I, you know, in terms of gentle minions, I actually think that's pleasing. I actually like young people connecting with one another and going to physical space and enjoying their night, whether it's ironic or not, and sitting there with their hands clasped in a certain way. And I think that's cute. I think that's important. I think that's a healthy behavior that enables them to see that they can work in physical space again. For two years, Gentle Minions would have been possible. You know, it would have been solely digital, solely ironic. And now it's very possible for them to go back out into physical space. And this is only the beginning of many trends that might look for it. But executives, I mean, we're not speaking to executives, but people at the top are like, they should not plan anything based on this. This is no, this is an unplannable behavior. It is an unplannable behavior, and it's amazing to watch as as Gen Z claps at the opening of Gru and watches the real-time evolution. But the roots of the evolution of this are both aesthetic-based and actually contain some resonance of danger and extremism and radicalization. So I'm hoping that we can begin to dive into what that looks like. Here's where it's scary. And it's scary because it's the same roots. It's like a different branch on the same tree. One branch might go bad and you, it might fall into your yard and like do some damage. And how did that branch on this very beautiful, big living tree die when the rest of the tree is doing so well? And it's because parts of it are affected by outside structures. So in using the organic thing, it's like, let's just say it's bugs or fungus or whatever, happen to manifest itself in a small way, but enough to attack a small part of that organism. And enough of that organism rots and it rots from the inside until it takes action. And in the case of my organic analogy, it falls, so it destroys something. But the rest of the tree survives. Other trees will grow. Many, many more parts of the forest are out there. But sometimes when we look down at the roots, going all the way down to irony posting, you could see that it might manifest in a big, beautiful part of the flowering bush that is gentle minions, which is dumb but nice. And then on the other side, you get somebody who has decided to use irony posting in a way that is for one, incoherent. It doesn't really make sense to an outside group. And two, enforces the idea not of taking action, but losing the ability to choose not to take action. Here's where it gets a little complicated. 
so to do the contrast, Gentle Minions is an irony posting meme that Gen Z has taken up to basically show people how memes can activate in real life. So there is a direct action correlation. However, there is an invert to this too. What if you reduce somebody's ability to make conscious reality-based decisions? What if you use the same tools to dehumanize or to lower their ability to take action? In other words, to feel more nihilistic, to feel more alone, to feel more disenfranchised. That rot is what ends up being inside of the same irony posting. And when I use the term irony posting, I mean content moderators have a difficult time taking the content down because the intent is not violent. The intent is almost equivalent to that of the gentlemanians. It makes very little sense. It's incoherent. And content moderators look at it and say, you know, this feels dangerous. This feels bad. But it's not doing anything that's actually breaking our platform rules. It's not actually doing something that's going to make us take action to remove this. It's further complicated by if it is removed, where do they go? Sometimes it's interesting to see how Gentle Minions evolves into something that creates movie-going experiences because there's a trail of evidence, of, of action, of, of knowledge, of communication, of Discord chats and, and ticket buying. And on the other side, you have these same irony posting type of content, but its coherence is low. In other words, it, it acts solely as memes referring to memes, referring to memes, referring to memes, but it doesn't say anything about taking action. And so platforms themselves look at it and say, what, what does this mean? And are we responsible for it? So I'm a content moderator and I'm scrolling through Twitter at my flagged posts and I see a bunch of these posts flagged. They're all reality reduction and they're all nihilistic. What do these look like? How do I begin to understand and interpret these posts? Is there a name for this style? There is, but it's not something that we're experts in. Uh, neither you nor I. Uh, there are extremist researchers who can talk about this to more extent. Uh, the term that would be used would be schizo posting, which is many, many steps further down the line from shit posting. Schizo posting is incoherent posting uh, that has very small tropes that are continual. Uh, but those continual tropes can be attached back to things that don't make any sense anyway. So even if you follow the tropes back to their origin, visual origins, you still won't be able to identify what schizo posting looks like in its present. And what that means to a platform is that now their memes will be showing up that kind of mix the aesthetic visual of deep fry memes with nihilism. Can you unpack deep fry memes? Yeah, so deep fry memes, which is a period of time from about 12, 2017 to 2018 in memetic world, were these memes that were constantly basically destroyed over and over again, posted. So they looked like they were saved, altered, saved, altered, saved, altered, and, and basically posted again until the image was very... Um, Pixelated, crusty, high contrast, disgusting colors. But it was our first foray into aesthetic-based schizo posting. Meaning, it doesn't matter what the meme is. It doesn't matter what the digital object is. What matters is the mood. It means that the meme has lifted out of the digital file, so to speak, and now is inside the head of the user. And how do you think about that? So then you have this idea of schizo posting, which is basically incoherent in-group speech. So somewhere in some message board, whether this be Discord, Telegram, even Reddit for, for if you're at the surface level, are speaking in code or at least in code encoded language, which enables them to share thoughts of sadness, of loneliness, of disenfranchisement. 
And those become radicalizing tools. And so this is where the rot starts in the branch. The radicalizing tool is not the schizo posting. The radicalizing tool is where do you go after your schizo posting or enjoying that. And in some cases, as many of the shooters have expressed in the most recent horrific incidences in Uvalde, Buffalo, uh, and Highland Park in, in Illinois, have expressed meme culture as part of a continuum coming from previous shooters, both mixing their manifesto work, but also from gore boards, uh, gore forums. And gore forums are the radicalizer. What gore forums are, unfortunately, I have to explain this, as an extension off of the original 4chan culture of posting whatever you want, even if it's the most disgusting and horrific thing ever. And gore forums are specific to showing horror. And I'm talking horror to humans, horror to animals, deaths. It's goal of a gore forum is to dehumanize not by not by ideology but rather dehumanize by turning the body into a into a bloody object so who is most vulnerable to schizo posting and and ending up on gore forums this is where bad actors really know their audience and this is when platforms themselves may want to start paying attention to people that are using the artifacts of schizo posting and gore forums to push young people the most vulnerable in this case are 13 to 24-year-old white men. They are bombarded, bombarded by these, these ideologies that are coming from the internet, from cancel culture to feeling that there's such a such thing that doesn't exist as reverse racism, that they feel like there's these terms that are being told to them by these high-end influencers, whether that be a YouTuber, uh, a podcaster, so forth. But popular voices often amplify these sometimes bad actors, sometimes good actors, but actors acting in bad faith, who, who know very well that what they're saying is going to affect these young men, because what they believe is that these young men will grow up to feel like they have to make a change in the world. They have to reverse this. And this is, again, this is going to create a new, once that, that branch falls, this is where the fungus gets in the dirt and starts growing in other places. These young men do not typically fit into the old formats of what terrorism, domestic terrorism would look like, maybe categorized under white supremacy, radical Islamists, anti-government militias. These are very visible domestic terrorists. And these improperly named lone wolf actors aren't lone wolf. They are com uh, community-based actors. They, they are acting from an, an internet-based forum. And seeing this and becoming more fluent in internet and feeling that they're collective ideology, the feeling of disenfranchisement, as if these bad actors telling them that they're right, becomes their feeling and they feel like there's no way out. And then the choice to take action isn't actually being, they're not persuaded to become a shooter. That's not, I think that's something that the extremist researchers, we have some really phenomenal extremism researchers from Emily Conley, Sarah Hightower, and Kisa White, who are really explaining this in such a good way, because they're explaining that this type of ideology is a meme ideology based on a previous action. So in other words, when a shooter kills people, they usually create a, a digital footprint of their history, collecting manifesto parts from previous shooters, and then knowing or becoming aware that they will be investigated. That public investigation results in the reaction. That reaction becomes the meme that enables the next shooter to build upon that meme. So while the door of schizo posting is incoherent, it is the radicalizing entry point for them to start going into places where they feel like they belong 
and they could start creating memes of their own. And in this dangerous way, they're the meme. Wow, that is a tremendous amount to unpack. Yeah, but, it's a lot. But, a lot. but I, I think that there's a tweet by Elad Nehorai mm-hmm. that was tweeted on July 9th, 2022, that I really want to call to attention. Elad writes, Mm -hmm. two days ago, a man was arrested in Long Beach, where I live, for planning a mass shooting. He posted about wanting to murder black people and carry out genocide against Jews. They thought he might target Pride Fest. He claimed he was just participating in, quote, meme culture. This is this is going to cause us problems. All right. So as in terms of you and I, as meme literacy folk, and people who are trying their best to inform people of how memes operate, what memes do, their inevitable power, their ability to hi- create history replacements, their ability to create anonymous protests, and their ability to create gentle minions. It's all meme culture, in quotes. What this shooter who is planning this mass shooting is saying when they're using the term meme culture is a direct reference to Elliot Roger or Columbine. This is about... The meme of the incel. And the meme of the incel can't be said out loud. In other words, when this young person says, I'm participating in, quote, meme culture, they're really saying a coded word for I'm participating in incel culture or incel violence. Why can't that be said out loud? It's uh, incel behavior or incel culture would be a red flag. Much like uh, platforms would try to remove that type of content, as would law enforcement. So when you use the term meme culture, it doesn't raise any red flags. It doesn't cause platforms to decide, well, we have to remove this content. It doesn't cause law enforcement to hear the dog whistle and be like, well, we, we can't do anything about this. It's meme culture, again, when when the a typical normie hears it, is gentle minions. Or or making posts on Instagram or or the fat Jewish, you know, it's like <laughs> it's, that's it's, that's as dumb as meme culture can get. And to revert back to earlier, a decade ago, it was Tebowing. Yes, yeah, taking action, re- replicable action that was repeatable in the identical format. In other words, whether it was planking or Tebowing, you had to do the same repetitive action for it to be visible. This also goes to flash mobs of the millennial era, like um, Harlem Shake. You know, the Harlem Shake was a repeatable behavior that had to be mimicked almost identically or it was unrecognizable. Today's meme culture is a strand that is built upon the reaction of the previous meme, which is Mm. how memes work. Memes, as Lamar Schiffman defines, are are made with awareness of other memes, um, have the ability for an audience to participate and replicate them and create them, and have to be shareable. And so those types, that same formula of a digital meme is identical to this horrific meme culture. But what I think a lot of people have to start paying attention to is that, as as the extremist researchers say, many of the ideologies of modern memes have baked in horror. Uh, And what it means by baked in horror is that feelings of accelerationism, neo-fascism, schizoid beliefs... Uh, mental illness, nihilism, fatalism, incel culture, <laughs> all of this is part of the meme before it becomes a meme. So when they, when someone takes part in this meme culture, they don't have to refer to the steps in which the meme has morphed to the present. Fascist behavior is baked into it. So the fascist behavior is baked into it based upon a certain type of aesthetic. We've talked to Grafton Tanner in the past who has written amazing books like Babbling Corpse and The Hours Have Lost Their Clock. Can you go into what this actually looks like? How does someone identify what this meme looks like and why should they 
always pause before sharing it or looking into researching this? Yeah, this is, I mean, this is, maybe we'll do a whole other piece on just this uh, faux nostalgia. Yeah, we'll have Grafton on again soon. Oh, yeah, excellent. Because faux nostalgia is the base of this. And faux nostalgia is, I'm just going to say it out loud, it is Western chauvinism. Okay, so it is built upon a, an imagined past that doesn't or hasn't existed. Uh, it's a similar to Make America Great Again. You know, it's like there's an imagined past of something that's a memory, but actually never happened in physical space. 1955, white picket fence, yeah. husband, wife, two kids and a dog. Exactly. An invention of post-war suburbia in a very short amount of time increased a way of living for the American middle class which spread like a virus across the earth to be the way that people lived ex ex urbanly, but not rural. And at the same time created a formula, a repeatable formula <laughs> that created a better way of purchasing items. And so from a marketing standpoint, suburbia is fantastic because you could basically have a cookie cutter of the same family that can participate in capitalism. That is the faux nostalgia. And it's Western because obviously it's a Western construct from Europe to uh, the Americas uh, or the North America, not the global South here, but the global South has adopted this in different ways. And this traditionalism or Western chauvinism is this belief that there was a, that was the best time in history. The probably the moment in which it becomes stylistic is the 1980s. Uh, and stylistically uh, American Western culture became a style at that point. So it lifted out of the formulaic cookie cutter thing into something wearable. As we got uh, different music, uh, you had technology that allowed like the Moog to be part of the music, lo-fi, uh, neon colors, uh, VHS looking images. You know, it was basically- Tron. Tron, yeah. So it was, it was mixing digital with style, with traditional cookie cutter action. Plus, I mean, if you want to go further, like cocaine and credit cards, you know? So <laughs> it was really getting accelerated at this point. But it was still repeating the format from the 50s. All right. It's still the same downstream of that. As we entered the 90s and into the cyber era, we started seeing these images become concretized. And we, we didn't really think back until you jump ahead now, 30 years, and you end up at Vaporwave. And the Vaporwave is a aesthetic splash genre. Okay. So it's two things at one. Vaporwave, if you ever hear it, is is kind of like Muzak. Um, it sounds like elevator music, but it's got an EDM beat. And it's usually pasted over neon colors, VHS-looking aesthetics, and uh, these very Tron-like lines in the background. We'll have a few examples of these in the show notes. Yes, yeah. And they're good to look at. I mean, they're they're neat. They're 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 nice. They were an early 2010s. Uh, type of style. I know a lot of students who are really into it. And it's, it's it back downstream from that is uh, love five beats to study to, you know, so it's kind of just like ambient music in the background. But then as Barack Obama presidency unfolded and racism increased and anti-Semitism was baked into a lot of this through uh, pushback against what quote unquote they would call uh, the bad actors would call globalists. That's a keyword or uh, code word for anti-Semitism. That reaction created a new type of meme. Uh, and that meme of Western traditionalism or Western aesthetics started using this term, um, these phrases that would often come in, such as, uh, look what they took from us, or embrace tradition, reject modernity. Those are dog whistles for fascism. 
And when I use the term fascism or neo-fascism here, I mean you do not have to say that you are anti-Semitic or racist. It's already in it. Fascism already bakes that in. So when there's those feelings of embrace tradition, reject modernity, you are already using neo-fascist language because it's already baked with exclusionary tactics. Because that's exactly what it's saying. It's saying, let's go back to the days when it was unfair, when world world excluded people of different colors, people who were Jewish, people who uh, were queer. It, there were no ability for them to participate in society and to the Western traditionalists or the Western chauvinists. This was the best time in history. We then get, in our modern day, a format that comes from the alt-right. This is like when people ask me, like, how do you explain this? I go, well, do you have four hours? Um, <laughs> in 2011, there was an article in the New York Times that said a new haircut comes to town. Uh, yeah. And at that point, and it, in all reality, there was an article about how people started shaving the sides of their heads and creating this flop top um, brown shirt type of uh, hairstyle that was reminiscent of the Hitler youth. And it was, as the New York Times always does, didn't take it as seriously as it should have. Uh, I was making it more along the lines of an aesthetic. Now, I'm not tying this directly to what I'm saying, but it's just to say that this is not something that could be summed up in a short period of time. But what it can say is that when a popular aesthetic doesn't have wide reach, in other words, vaporwave, it's a very niche aesthetic, very niche uh, uh, in-group or subculture, but it was cool. Um, and even the movie Drive uses the, the, the sounds of vaporwave. Um, so you get a popular aesthetic, a popular mood, and then bad actors in the alt-right overlay Western chauvinism onto the aesthetic. And now you can see a new style called Fash Wave. And Fash Wave is from about 2016 to present. And it is the aesthetic of Vaporwave with the, te the terminology and symbology of Western chauvinism and neo-Nazi content. So like the Sonnenrad is sometimes visible. Um, or Hitler would be visible, but neon-based. And this type of meme... So now I'm going to bring it back here. This type of meme no longer needs to be shared for it to be part of a culture. You can simply know it exists and adopt that ideology or at least adopt that meme as something that belongs to you. And now content moderators don't know what to do with it because it doesn't contain, quote unquote, intent. There's no intent to cause harm inside of these memes. It's an aesthetic. It is a fashion. It is protected by the First Amendment. How does someone then know that this is a bad sign? How do you know when this becomes a red flag? How do you know when this becomes the door to the rabbit hole? How do you prevent people from being radicalized by engaging with content that is so unclear? This is what we're this is where you and I and many of the people around us have to explain that meme literacies are really a matter of the same way we would read text. Prose didn't just appear. Spelling didn't just appear. It wasn't until the 1800s that Webster's Dictionary was made. You have to concretize language at some point or another. And of course, yes, the concretization of language always creates nationalism. I get that too. That's a whole other story. But memes themselves have a history, a graphical language that is downstream from previous graphical languages. And what we're witnessing today is the lifting off of the graphical language into action languages, manifestos, uh, actions, behaviors. So like sociology could take a big play in this too, because incel behavior is the meme. So the incel behavior comes from a misunderstanding of the past. There was a belief 
that if pickup artistry or some actions of getting women didn't work, they must be involuntarily celibate. That's an incorrect thought. It's a thought that doesn't exist, but they are reinforced. Those thoughts are reinforced by bad actors or community-based engagement who push incel behavior into that nihilistic space. Don't believe in anything. Like that's, instead of saying, well, let's believe in the good in the world, let's believe in helping collectively. I mean, that's the irony of this too, right? Like they're a collective. These people are all in the same space. They're all sharing thoughts together. They're all technically helping each other. And yet they're misusing that for dehumanization. Yeah, it's it's really funny. And I think it's important to look at what was happening around the time that this aesthetic pops up too, to help tie this all together. 1980 is the beginning of the rise of neoliberalism. It's the beginning of deregulation and privatization, which helps to fuel the feelings of discontent and disillusionment among suburban white middle class that begins to feel things changing and shifting. And so, <laughs> we, we find ourselves 50 years or 40 years after the fact at a point where, oh, wow, these people have organized in a way that promotes nihilism and they can't feel like they can do anything about it other than share these memes within their communities and, and try to make sense of this. Yeah. And, and what, one of the things I think is important what you just said is that these these feelings that they are getting are leading them down these, these spaces of like, where's where they're going from memes to schizopilled, right? So their memes are maybe the entry point to something that's appealing, appealing meaning becoming aware of another space, um, being ra- thrown down the rabbit hole into these schizopilled spaces. And it it is a mix of a lot of different things that do are cause a ripe for, this term might not be great, ripe for recruitment, you know? So it's like, I want to use the term recruitment because it sounds like, it's the way that traditional domestic terrorism works, where they're recruited into this. But it's really, uh, as many of the researchers have expressed, it's not, again, I'm going to repeat this, it's not uh, encouraging people to take action, because that would raise red flags, that would get them banned, that would cause law enforcement to take step in. It's rather lowering their ability to not take action. It's ripe for imitation. Yes. Mm-hmm. If you lower somebody's ability to not commit violence, then they might take imitation violence. And so the meme is the violence the meme is then repeatable or reaction-based. So the next killer, shooter, action person does it is there. I, I, and I just want to quote, I want to quote Brian Hughes here with something that he said that I think is a little high level, but it, it really reminds me of how it's operating. Because this sentence is really important. Now, this is this is where I'd like to like make this leave off because we could talk about this for hours. But I think if we dissect this sentence, I think we could kind of get a good sense of where things are. He said, right now, these young men are prostheses of a cyborg system with strong antisocial components. And that, to me, I think is what we have to look at. So the way I use the term tree and how it's rotting from the inside, you have to look at maybe that branch has landed and created its own very disgusting tree that is distinctly separate from the original tree. So this is where the, the change from gentle minions to the incel killer might be. But what it is, is that as a prosthesis of a cyborg system is amazing because when you think about a cyborg system, it's a decentralized unit of ideas that exists solely separate from another space, but has tons of prosthesis. So when we try to think about a human body, it doesn't look like that at all. It could be tens of thousands of appendages. And all of these appendages are slightly different. And some may take action and some may not, but they do all come from the same hive mind in this space, this cyborg hive mind. 
And that is the part that's going to be difficult for us to start analyzing. And I think this is why accelerationism is very scary, because it is the hope for the collapse of everything, so it could be replaced by another structure. Uh, and in the case of accelerationists, the people who believe in it, it usually means being replaced by a white supremacist structure or a anti-Semitic structure. So it could cause literal speed of how this starts getting deployed because the imitation reaction like a meme morphs and metastasizes like cancer very quickly. This is not the type of cancer you want to metastasize. It is a hope for the collapse faster than not. And so these appendages, these pieces of the cyborg system may not truly believe in that. I mean, that again, is that there's bad actors at the top of that that really push that. I think a lot of these young people feel part of it. And I don't think they want to take violent action or, or do bad things. I think the as, as I've spoken to law enforcement in some cases, while there may be, let's just say, hypothetically, hundreds of thousands of young men in these spaces, very, very few will take action, extraordinarily few. And I think what we have to do is not just support these young people by helping them become more fluent in uh, collective-based reality, um, or at least reality in which they're not alone in the world, but also aware of the rabbit hole structure that is pushing them backward or inverted from humanism, you know, pushing them into dehumanism. And I think that part is where the meme culture, the quote unquote meme culture has to have a punctuation mark. It has to stop. It has to be stopped using in the terms of this. And I think, again, when, when a shooter uses the term meme culture to a reporter, to a law enforcement agent, they're doing their best to cause the news to repeat that. And when it's repeated, it gets in the public's head and the public head starts seeing memes in general as not great. And if you're a mainstream outlet and you're grappling about what to report on or what not to, not only are meme literacies important, but how, how do you weigh your public responsibility to communicate intent? How, how does a broadcaster begin to do that? Yeah, this is where responsibility, this is where uh, reporter, we were very lucky. Um, in another episode we'll do, I guess we'll just do a defense of internet culture reporting because we have so many amazing internet culture reporters out there now that are really doing their best to uh, inform the public with the general guidelines of the, the, the news broadcasting system they work for. And they're doing a really, really phenomenal job of slowly making the public more... Um, aware of what these the internet does as a culture um, and a subculture. And I think we have to just keep, um, I guess, praising them. And I think this is where they have a tough time in their job because these people who use the term meme culture on the internet be believe it belongs to them and it doesn't belong to a singular person and it is a collective that belongs. You can't turn it off, so it's pretty much everybody's. Um, so it is, I think this is where news corporations, new, public mainstream um, or any type of thing should really refer directly to the internet culture reporters that are have either been in it or at least can translate the content for the public because we have to be very, very responsible with what we mean when we use the term, quote, meme culture moving forward. Yeah, I think that's a great call to arms. And we'll continue talking about this as we go on. I think we have four new episode topics just based on today's conversation. Yes, this is one of those things where it's, I'm glad we're talking about it because we need to start communicating that these, this all comes from a similar background and it's all, nothing exists in a vacuum. But I think it's important for people to start understanding that these these young men, these vulnerable young men who are more likely to fall into what quote unquote mean culture uh, aren't unreachable. 
they they are reachable. It is just a matter of increasing awareness of the entire system around it. If you could offer one recommendation to someone listening about what they could do in the next week, what would that be? Uh, be open-minded. <laughs> uh, that's it's it's not to fall into the traps of pre-established personal biases. Um, we have them. Everyone has it. But I noticed very often when these news reports about the shooters appear, oftentimes the terms, this isn't I, this isn't primarily ideological based. Uh, it's more along the lines of meme based. And people are like, oh, yeah, well, didn't you see him at the Trump rally? Or didn't you see him at the Antifa thing? Or didn't you see him at this? Everybody wants to use their Rorschach test and like place blame from their previous knowledge. In all reality, yes, the shooter had baked in anti-Semitism primarily, and then racism baked in as well. I mean, that's an ideology that's in there. It's part of the action. People don't take action often without having baked in horror in their mind. But keep an open mind that there's more to it than just this. It's not just something we want to put our pre-bias on and assume news was wrong. There are researchers and experts that have studied this for a very long time that have made this very clear. And we have to listen to the the extremist researchers, specifically women and people of color who are extremist researchers, and more importantly, find people who have been doing this type of research for well over the last few decades. So if for news literacy purposes, when you read an article about this, I would say, see if there's an extremist researcher quoted in it. Thank you so much. We will continue to dive into these topics over the next few weeks and months. Jamie, thank you so much, as always, for doing this. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad to continue talking about this and we're going to keep going with it. Yeah, we are. Thanks again. Thanks for tuning into the Digital Void podcast. You can find out more about Digital Void and all of our projects and live events on our website at digitalvoid.media. We'll be back next week with a conversation featuring author Grafton Tanner to continue the thinking we began in this conversation. Stay safe and we'll see you soon. And so we might say this is an experience of the void.